Father, thank you for this precious life that you've blessed Pastor Nathan and Jill with, uh, building their family and, and giving them another wonderful gift. And we pray for Jill's health, and we pray for this son, that he'll be healthy as well. Give the doctors wisdom tonight. We pray that everything goes very smoothly for them and give a nice intimate time in the hospital together with this new child. I don't know who's watching, or I believe it's Fran, Ed and Francine watching the other kids, and I pray that goes well for them at the parsonage. We pray for this child, like their other children and like all the other children in this church, that you'd bring them to salvation at the earliest time in their lives, that they would come to love and serve Christ, be a blessing to you, that you would uh, open their hearts to the gospel, grant them repentance and faith. I thank you for this time as your word goes forward, Lord. I believe we're dealing with a sermon today that has great application for all of us as we come to the end of this account, <clears throat> dealing with Shimei. We all have Shimei's in our lives, I suspect, have in the past, and pr- probably will face other Shimei's in the future. So I pray as we bring this to a conclusion, Lord, that you would give us application, help us to see how to deal with fools that we would encounter, and also to be convicted about being foolish ourselves. So the Bible, I think, is doubly instructive regarding the discussion of fools. It tells us how to deal with them, but also would hopefully help us avoid being foolish ourselves, something all of us are given over to to some extent, Lord. So I pray for this time that you can be pleased with it. If you use me as your vessel, Lord, I've labored in these verses for, for uh, weeks now and coming to the end of what I believe you have for me. But if there's anything I've missed or anything else you desire to say to your people, just bring that forth. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So tell this morning's sermon is, how do you deal with fools? How do you deal with fools? We paused our verse-by-verse study in Luke's gospel to look at this account of Shimei cursing David. There's one more important detail from this account before I move on, so I don't always know how much material I will develop on a passage. I thought there'd be one sermon on this. This will be the last one, but there was a section of this account that I thought was very significant that I didn't want to overlook, and I couldn't fit it into the, the last sermon, and it didn't really relate to the last sermon anyway, and there's more than enough material to have its own sermon. I actually had to take quite a bit out just to fit this to one sermon. So let me briefly review. <clears throat> David's experienced one of the lowest points in his life. He lost the throne to his wicked son Absalom, and much of the nation joined Absalom in this rebellion. And when things look like it couldn't get worse for David, as he is fleeing the capital, fleeing Jerusalem, a man named Shimei finds him, and this is a man that despises him. Look at verse 8. The Lord has avenged on you. This is what Shimei says to David. The Lord's avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. This is not true. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Something else that also is not true. So Shimei is related to Saul. Even though Saul lost the throne, perhaps two or even three decades ago, he still blames David for all of Saul's misfortune. Shimei used to be a member of the royal house when the, when the dynasty belonged to Saul, and now Shimei has probably suffered some amount when Saul's uh, house was overthrown, and he has become angrier and more bitter over these years, and he sees David in this very vulnerable position takes advantage of it to come out and curse him and throw rocks at him. Something with Shimei that strikes me is we tend to think that when people are angry, they, um, let's say, move on with time. And Shimei is a good example of that not always being the case. In fact, so you kind of think, well, as time goes on, they'll stop being angry. 
Well, sometimes as time goes on, people become angrier. Those roots of bitterness can go down deeper. And that's really what we see here with Shimei. I mean, the way he acts, you'd think that this had just happened yesterday, uh, when in fact it's been 20 or perhaps even 30 years that he's been this upset. And every year that passes by, Shimei is becoming more bitter toward David. So he finally has this opportunity of a lifetime to come out and to curse him and throw rocks at him like this. Look at verse 9. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, said to David, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. And I just want you to keep in mind that there's at least one of, but probably more than that, because we can tell when David responds that he's addressing more than just Shimei, but at least one of David's mighty men who was encouraging him to have Shimei executed. Verse 10, the king said, David responds, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite, and then notice this, leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And I just want you to notice that phrase, leave him alone and let him curse. Because the longer that I am a pastor, the greater wisdom that I find in just these few words. And they're going to be the focus of much of the rest of the sermon. You might circle these words, highlight them, put stars next to them, whatever you have to do to remember them so that you can come back to them when you're slandered or you have to deal with fools in your life. In the previous sermon, I explained the difference between gossip and slander. Let me briefly remind you. Gossip is spreading negative information about people to others who have no business knowing that information, but at least the information is true. If that information that's being spread is untrue, then it's not gossip, it's what? It is slander. It is slander. Slander is spreading lies about people. And what Shimei is saying here is untrue. Whether he believed it or not, and he seemed to be completely convinced of his words, it was still untrue. It was slander. He's falsely accusing David of violently overthrowing the house of Saul, but as we have talked, it was just the opposite. You can think of the good friend that David was to Saul and how faithfully he served him, that when when Saul was tormented by that demonic spirit, David was the one to come and attempt to alleviate him by playing music before him, even attempting to alleviate him of torment while Saul's, I mean, how hard is it to play music while someone's throwing spears at you, right? But David was still willing to do that. You think about his friendship toward, with Jonathan, you think about his kindness toward Mephibosheth, and probably most importantly, you think about the number of times that David spared Saul's life and also prevented his men from raising a hand against Saul. So my point is this, when Shimei was saying these things to David, David was able to have something incredibly important, and that is a clear conscience. He knew that the things that Shimei was saying were not true. And this brings us to lesson one. Let a clear conscience keep you silent. Let a clear conscience keep you silent. I'm convinced that one of the reasons David could respond the way that he did was he had a clear conscience. He knew that the things Shimei was saying, the slander, was untrue. You might remember in our last sermon, what did Shimei do 
when David regained the throne after Absalom had been executed. Does anyone remember? Huh? He raced down to apologize. And one of the things that Shimei said to David was, 2 Samuel 19, 19, do not let the king take it to heart. Kind of forget about everything I said. Just pretend like it didn't happen. (laughs) Don't take it to heart. Well, I mention that because, in a sense, David didn't have to take it to heart because it simply wasn't true. And when people slander us, it can be difficult not to respond. We want to defend ourselves. We want to explain what really happened. We want to say, this isn't right. This is a lie. How could you say this? Well, a clear conscience should make it much easier not to respond, to recognize, like David did, that the slander itself is untrue. As difficult as it is to be slandered, there is a verse that can greatly encourage us. If you want to turn to 1 Peter 3, We won't turn back to 2 Samuel. David did not take it to heart, and you don't have to take it to heart when people slander you if it is untrue, which is what slander is. So look at this verse. 1 Peter 3, Hebrews, James, Peter, verse 16. It says, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter says that having a good conscience can allow us to remain silent when slandered. So if you know that the slander against you is untrue, you can disregard it. You don't have to give it a second thought. You don't have to let it keep you up at night. You don't have to let it ruin your day. You don't have to go around being weighed down by whatever these people might be saying or this person might have said that is untrue. Notice what the verse tells us to do instead. It mentions good behavior. It says to, so you're not going to respond to the slander with words, but you are going to respond to the slander with good behavior, it says. Turn to the, to the left one chapter to 1 Peter 2.12 to see similar instruction. It is a theme in this book. It is a theme in Peter's letter to respond to slander this way, with good behavior. 1 Peter 2.12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they revile you, and you might remember from a previous sermon, or perhaps your Bibles might even say slander instead of revile, that I shared that revile and slander are synonyms. So he says, when they revile you as evildoers, or when they slander you, that they may see your good deeds. That's synonymous with good behavior, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look at verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so again, you're not going to silence foolish people with words. We're going to talk more about that later in the sermon. But when you give foolish people your words, all it does is stir them up more. The best way to respond is with good behavior, and you can't miss the emphasis on that through these three verses. Verse 16, 
he says, have a good conscience. When you're slander, those who are value, see your good behavior. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And then he says that they may see your good deeds. In verse 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so Peter repeatedly says to respond to slander with godly behavior. And this brings us to lesson two. Respond to fools with godly behavior. Respond to fools with godly behavior. Now, why did I say fools versus slanderers? Because as I developed this sermon, most of the verses that I looked at about responding with silence to people are from Proverbs and encourage us to be silent and not to respond to fools. And also, verse 15 says that. Look in verse 15. First Peter 2, 15. This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, or we would say fools. Peter says to silence fools by doing good or by responding with godly behavior. And so what does this mean then? Well, it means to keep serving the Lord. It means to remain faithful. It means to have joy. It means to invest your time and energy with brothers and sisters in Christ. What would fools or what would slanderers love more than anything else? Pretty much the opposite of that, right? Most of the pastors that I've developed close friendships with, or maybe I should say all the pastors I develop close friendships with, and if you are ever in ministry someday, your closest friends will hopefully be your elders, which I feel like I'm blessed to say is the case. But I would also say it's important to have other elders or pastors as close friends because there are going to be times when you're going to want an objective opinion or counsel from someone outside of your congregation that you shepherd. And so some pastor friends of mine, I don't speak to them probably as much as uh, you know, I might like, but they've been available to me and have provided invaluable counsel at times, and Carrie Green is one of them. So I asked him if I could share this. We actually became close friends when he was going through something difficult in his church. I would say there were fools in his church that were slandering him. And I know that because these fools sent me like this 50-page document um, slandering Carrie. And so we became close during that time when he reached out to me about that. We went up and stayed with Carrie's family. And Katie was talking to Carrie's wife, Lois, and some of you might remember them from when they came to spoke at, Carrie spoke at camp, and they shared once during Sunday school, and I believe he preached here too. And Katie's looked up to Carrie's wife, Lois, and Katie was talking to her about the situation they were experiencing because Lois seemed to be able to handle this very difficult situation almost effortlessly. So here's what Lois told Katie which Katie and I have repeated to each other over the years. Lois said, there's too much work to do for the Lord, and there are too many people to love and to serve. So Lois's point was, I cannot give them attention. I cannot deal with them. I cannot let them serve as a distraction. There's too much work to be done for the kingdom, and there are too many important people to love and to serve. So Lois recognized that these slanders or these fools could be huge distractions, and the best thing that Carrie and Lois could do was respond with godly behavior, not waste time and energy. Invest that time and energy in the important work of the ministry that needed to be done. And they have a, they have a big church. It might be twice the size of our church. Plenty of people there for them to be shepherding and dealing with. They have 14 kids or maybe more now because they adopted, adopted one as well. 
One of the other wonderful things about responding with godly behavior is it maintains a good witness to the unbelieving world. And that's what Peter said. If you look in 1 Peter 2.12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they slander or revile you as evildoers, it says slander in NASB and the Amplified, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter's point is one other reason to respond with goodly beha- godly behavior is that's going to serve as a witness to the onlooking, unbelieving world. That's what will be a testimony to them. Now, fools don't want you to be godly. Why would they not want you to be godly? Fools don't want you to be godly because then their slander is shown to be what? Untrue or inaccurate. So they want you to be ungodly. They're going to want you to live down to the things that they're saying so that it looks like those sayings are true. And David sets a great example for us. He just takes, takes the high road. He maintains his composure. He doesn't give any attention to Shimei. We talk about why David was the man after God's own heart. And I see many ways that he looks like Jesus in this account. I mean, because there are those times you can wonder why he would be given that title after the murder and adultery that he committed. But then as you read through First and Second Samuel, there are numerous instances of him looking like Christ, and this is one of them. First, do you remember when Peter wanted to take out his sword and start chopping, chopping people up? All he did was cause problems for Jesus and ear, ears for Jesus to have to put back on. But he wanted to start killing Jesus' attackers, and Jesus rebuked him. Did David have someone similar? Was there someone with David who wanted to take out his sword and start probably chopping off more than ears? He wanted to chop Abishai's, or he wanted to chop Shimei's head off. And David rebuked Abishai, just like Jesus rebuked Peter. And one reason I mention this is if you're ever being slandered, you're probably going to have people in your life who love you, who are going to be like Abishai and Peter, and you're going to have to restrain them. <laughs> they're, they're going to want to take out swords, figuratively speaking, and start attacking, and you're going to have to tell them not to, that the godly response under most circumstances is to remain silent. So you're going to have to restrain your, your Peters and Abishais just like David and Jesus had to do from retaliating. The second similarity between David and Jesus, look at verse 23, 1 Peter 2, 23. 1 Peter 2, 23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly, referring to God the Father. And David did the same thing. If you remember when Shimei slandered David, David said, 2 Samuel 16, 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. And so just like Jesus put his hands or his, his life in the hands of his father, we see David putting his life in the hands of the Lord as well, saying he looks on this. He is sovereign. He can, he can take care of this situation. He does not need my help or he doesn't need me to respond. And the third and most obvious way that David looks like Jesus is regarding their silence. No matter how badly you might ever feel like you're being slandered, I guarantee that it does not remotely approach the slander that our Lord experienced. 
In fact, anything in your life pales in, that you have found to be difficult pales into comparison to what Jesus had to experience, especially during the trials leading up to his crucifixion. He had to deal with slander from the religious leaders throughout his earthly ministry, but you come to those trials, the kangaroo courts that were taking place, and there was almost nothing that was said that wasn't slander. They even brought up witnesses that would testify falsely against Christ. So if there's ever been a time that it must have been difficult to remain silent, it was during Jesus's trials, but that's exactly what he did. It says when he was reviled, which is synonymous with slandered or says slander in some Bibles, he didn't revile or he did not slander in return. It says he did not threaten. And so Jesus was silent to those. That's how he responded. David was silent to Shimei, slandering him, and we should be silent too. And this brings us to lesson three. Don't respond to fools with words. Lesson three, don't respond to fools with words. So another way you could look at it is this. Peter tells us how to respond. He tells us how not to respond. He tells us how to respond with godly behavior, and he tells us how not to respond with words. And think of how well David demonstrated this with Shimei. David did talk in the account. You say, was David totally silent? No, he wasn't totally silent. He spoke, and he did even rebuke. But he didn't rebuke Shimei. He rebuked Abishai and any other men who wanted to respond to Shimei. So David was so committed to ensuring that Shimei was ignored that he even rebuked his men to prevent them from saying anything to him. David describes this approach in the psalm, Psalm 38:13. He said David says, "I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth." So he acts like he is someone who can't hear the things that are being said about him. Psalm 39 verse 2 says, "I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail." Now listen to this and my distress grew worse. And I always love that part. Just one more time, listen to this. He says, I was mute, I was silent, I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. Well, David was human, and it was harder. It became harder and harder for him to remain silent. So you can identify with him. You say, well, maybe, maybe David was just sort of impervious to this. Maybe it was easy for him not to respond. No, he wrote in the Psalms how difficult it was for him not to respond. A few verses later, David wrote, Psalm 39, 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. And so David was committed to remaining silent when scorned by fools. There are other good examples beyond just David. I'll share a few of them with me, with you, although there are others I could bring up as well. When Hezekiah was king of Judah, you might remember when he was famously attacked by the Assyrians because of the way that that ended up going. God, because Hezekiah turned to the Lord, because Hezekiah remained silent to the Assyrians and turned to the Lord for help, poured out his heart to God regarding their vulnerability or helplessness at that moment, God sent the angel of the Lord who famously slaughtered 180,000 or maybe 185,000 Assyrians. And when your whole army gets slaughtered by the angel of the Lord, you, you know, head home, which is what the Assyrians did. But listen to this. Hezekiah is attacked by the Assyrians. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, and he is completely antagonizing the Jews. A few verses. 2 Kings 18.15. 
Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Do not let him mislead you in this fashion. Don't believe him. For no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your god deliver you out of my hand? So Hezekiah tells the people, we can look to the Lord. The Lord can deliver us. Well, Sennacherib responds by telling the people not to listen to Hezekiah, not to believe him. Well, this didn't work. And Sennacherib recognized that. Or Sennacherib's antagonism didn't work because of the way that Hezekiah instructed his people. So he's doing everything he can to get the Jews to respond, and he steps it up. Verse 16, his servants said still more against the Lord and against his servant, and he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel. And so when Sennacherib's words weren't working, he ends up sending letters to the people of Judah as well. The Assyrians shouted with a loud voice in the language of, the Jew, of Judah, so they even, I guess, learned Hebrew, to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that the Assyrians might take the city. And so what we see here with Sinatra and the Assyrians is common with foolish people. If you don't respond, then they're going to get angrier and angrier because what they want more than anything else is a response from you. Now, I only read a few verses, but if I would have read all of them, you would see that there is no response from the Jews. And here's why. 2 Kings 18.36, the people were silent. They answered not a word for Hezekiah's command was, do not answer him. So Hezekiah did not just discourage the Jews from responding to the Assyrians. He commanded them to remain silent. And to their credit, they obeyed him. Jeremiah was the prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. One of the important things to understand for his book to make sense is that Jeremiah was telling the Jews to submit to the Babylonians. To submit to the Babylonians was to live. They had committed so much idolatry, God was going to remove them from the land by the Babylonians. The Jews were to submit to the Babylonians and go into exile in Babylon, and then 70 years later, God would bring them back to the land. So you've got Jeremiah telling the Jews, you need to submit to the Babylonians. Well, that's just like the perfect fodder for false prophets, right? So the false prophets come along, because what, what was the great enemy to Jeremiah during his earthly ministry? It wasn't the Assyrians, it wasn't the Babylonians, it wasn't the Philistines, it was the Jewish false prophets. And so Jeremiah is saying, submit to the Babylonians and live. The false prophets come along and they say, no, do not submit to the Babylonians. Fight. God is going to deliver us. God is going to overthrow the Babylonians and give us victory, which sounded incredibly good to all the people, except that it was a complete lie. So the false prophets, they have this field day with this. They're contradicting everything Jeremiah says. They're prophesying falsely to the people. They're spreading lies about Jeremiah, saying that he's actually trying to destroy Jerusalem because he's weakening the hands of the people. The false prophets come along and say, no, Jeremiah hates you. He wants to destroy Jerusalem. That's why he tells you to submit to Babylon. He serves them. When in fact, it was their lies that were going to get many of the Jews slaughtered by the Babylonians. It must have been incredibly difficult for Jeremiah to remain silent, but he did. I'll share just one account with you. You probably know that the false prophets would, or false prophets, excuse me, the true prophets of God would frequently use what's called object lessons to illustrate their teachings. And so one of the object lessons that Jeremiah used was a yoke, a yoke like they would put on oxen. 
And so Jeremiah walks around and he's got this yoke on his shoulders. And it's to illustrate the way that the Jews were supposed to submit to Babylon. He basically told the people, if you don't submit to Babylon, then you're going to be put under a yoke like this. There's a false prophet named Hananiah. And so he knew how good it sounded to tell the people that God was going to defeat Babylon. And so Hananiah super dramatically goes up to Jeremiah one day when he's wearing this yoke, and he takes it off his shoulders and he breaks it. Listen to this. Jeremiah 28, verse 10. The prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord. So he even speaks in first person for the Lord. This false prophet could not have sounded more like a real prophet. And he says, Thus says the Lord. Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which is the opposite of what God was going to do, from the neck of all the nations within two years. And so just picture what this looks like. Jeremiah is walking around with this yoke on his shoulders, telling the people to submit to Babylon. Hananiah, this false prophet who's probably incredibly popular with the people, walks up to Jeremiah, very dramatically takes the yoke off his shoulders, breaks it in front of the people and says, thus saith the Lord, God is going to overthrow the Babylonians within two years. Now you're on the edge of your seat, aren't you? You want to know what happened. What did Jeremiah do in the face of such opposition? Hananiah is making Jeremiah look bad. He declares that Jeremiah's prophecies are false. How is Jeremiah going to respond to such a fool? Jeremiah 28, 11. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. That's it. Jeremiah the prophet went his way. He remained silent. Listen to this quote I heard one time that should encourage us to respond similarly to fools. When you roll around in the mud with a pig, you both get muddy, but the pig likes it. (laughs) When you roll around in the mud with a pig, you both get muddy, but the pig likes it. So fools are in the mud. They want you to get in the mud with them. They want you to respond. They want to know they've upset you. They want to know that they've gotten under your skin. Few, Few things are more upsetting to slanderers than silence. Few things are going to upset revilers more than you not responding to them. It causes them to feel ignored. It deprives them of literally joy or happiness they would experience if you did respond so they could argue with you. The longer I'm in ministry, the more convinced I become of three things. First, fools want you to respond. Second, the best thing you can do is ignore them. Third, the worst thing you can do is respond. Responding is going to be pouring fuel on the fire. If you don't respond, I'm not guaranteeing that the fire is going to go out. But if you do respond, I can almost guarantee that the fire is going to get worse. I'll share a story with you from when I taught elementary school that illustrates this. So I had this student, we'll say his name is Brian. And I really liked him. I had a close relationship with him. But I don't know, in in the almost 10 years that I taught elementary school, if I ever had another student who had as much trouble remaining calm and not responding to students who were antagonizing him. Now, students can kind of be like sharks in the water when they smell blood, right? And so they know that if there is a student who's going to respond poorly when antagonized, those students are going to seek that student out and antagonize him even more. And so I would watch how frequently Brian would be harassed by other students simply because of how angry he would become 
and return. And you could, you could look at the students that were harassing him, and you could, you could almost see smirks beginning on their faces. You know, you could see the joy that these other students were receiving by his response to their harassment. So I sat down with him on more than one occasion, and I told him that every single time he got upset, he was doing exactly what those students wanted him to do. I shared this fishing analogy with him. I said, they're casting in the hook. They want you to bite on the bait. And as soon as you do, they start reeling you in like this. They're like, we caught Brian again. And it makes you matter and matter and matter, which is exactly what they want. You're responding because you're angry. And I said, but if you really want to upset them, the best thing you could do is ignore them. Now, I want to look at a few verses in Proverbs that support this, and this is the main reason that I came up with the title of this sermon about how to, re- how to deal with fools. Turn to Proverbs twelve sixteen. Two reasons to understand fools as they're described in Proverbs. And to be honest, there's a part of me that's somewhat uncomfortable talking so much about fools when I can think of plenty of times in my life when I have been what? I didn't really need so many of you to respond so quickly than that. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, plenty of times in my own life when I've been foolish. So there's this part of me that's sitting here talking about fools, and it's like, well, you know, there's conviction because of the times that I've been foolish. And so one reason, uh, more, more times than I'd like to count. Now, there are two reasons to read Proverbs or read about the Proverbs fool. First is so how we know how to respond to Proverbs fools, but then second is to help us avoid being Proverbs fools ourselves. There are certain people that are identified as fools, but there's some foolishness in all of us, and learning about fools can convict us of our own foolishness. There's never a time that I am more convicted by the times I've been foolish in my life than when I'm reading about fools in Proverbs and recognize times that I've been like that myself. Now, there's one, one more thing, and if you never heard this before, I hope you'd all take this with you for whenever you're reading God's Word. You don't read, God, you don't read every section of God's Word the same. There's literature that needs to be read according to the kind of literature it is. Right now, we're in wisdom literature. This is not law literature. And many people can have problems when they confuse law and wisdom literature, or they read wisdom literature like it's law, or they read law literature like it's wisdom. So an example of law literature would be Leviticus. It is not giving you wisdom to navigate situations well. Law literature like Leviticus is black and white, and it tells you what you can do and what you shouldn't do. Law literature, or applying the book of Leviticus, does not require wisdom. It requires self-control. But you don't have to figure out what to do because the law has already told you what to do or what not to do. So you don't read Leviticus like you read Proverbs. Proverbs is not law. Proverbs is not black and white. It is not guarantees. It's generalities, and it gives you wisdom to apply to the scenarios or situations that you face in life. And so when you're going through a situation and the law or Leviticus doesn't apply to it, but you're wondering, well, how should I deal with this? It requires wisdom. Look to Proverbs for the wisdom needed for that situation, to have the principles necessary to handle it well. Now, the fool is one of the most common topics in Proverbs mentioned 78 times, and dealing with fools 
requires wisdom. We're not going to have the time to look at all these verses, but I have chosen some that support what we're discussing. I also didn't want us to spend a lot of time flipping around. Maybe if you sat under my preaching long enough, you noticed I don't like to jump around too much when preaching. And so we're going to remain in Proverbs, and I've tried to put the Proverbs in order so that you don't have to turn too far between them. Now, the first one, Proverbs twelve sixteen. The vexation or anger of a fool is known at once. This would be Shimei. This would be Sennacherib. This would be Hananiah. But the prudent or the wise ignores an insult. This would be David. This would be Hezekiah. This would be Jeremiah. This would be our Lord Jesus Christ. And this would hopefully also be us. Now, vexation means wrath, which is how it's translated in the New King James, or it's, or it's anger, which is how it's translated in the NASB. And the point is, fools get angry quickly. But the prudent or the wise are going to be able to do what? Remain calm, and it says, ignore the insult, ignore the slander, not let their flesh flare up about it. Look at Proverbs 14.7. Turn two chapters to the right, Proverbs 14, 7. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Leave the presence of a fool. So this goes beyond just remaining silent. Here, we're told that if you encounter a fool, or if we encounter a fool, you're supposed to get away, with, away from them altogether. So the nice thing, I suppose, and I'm not making a joke, is God does not expect you to just necessarily sit there and experience all of the vexation or anger of a fool. God says you can go the other direction pretty much as quickly as possible. Look at Proverbs 23, verse 9. Proverbs 23, verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. So now you're told why you shouldn't. So we've just been talking about being told not to respond to fools, but now we're told why you shouldn't respond to fools, because they're going to hate your words. They're going to get upset. It's going to make them angrier. It's going to be pouring fuel on the fire. You're not going to respond to a fool, and the foolish person says, well... Yeah, you know, that's right. That makes, I, I shouldn't, should not have been slandering, or I, I shouldn't have written that, or said that, or posted that, or that was bad. That's not going to happen. Instead, they're just going to become angry with you. So the wisdom of Proverbs says to not speak to them. Look at Proverbs 29 11. Proverbs 29 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, and here spirit is being used almost synonymously with anger. And so again, this is Shimei, this is Sennacherib, this is Hananiah. He says a fool is going to give full vent to his anger, his hostility, but a wise man quietly holds it back, remains silent, does not respond. Again, this is David, this is, this is Hezekiah, this is Jeremiah, this is our Lord, and then this is hopefully us. I hope this sermon might equip all of us to respond like them. Fools lose their tempers, but wise or mature people exhibit self-control, and that self-control is described there. It says, 
quietly holding back from saying anything, again, remaining silent. Look at Proverbs 26, verse 4, to see two interesting Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So, interestingly, this proverb is saying that it is so foolish to answer a fool, you have to be a fool to do so. Or in other words, the only people who respond to fools are other fools. And so answering a fool makes you like the fool, which is, what have you ever, hence the quote, don't argue with a fool because people listening won't be able to tell the difference, right? So you're feeling super mature and you're thinking, you know, I'm just going to respond. I, I know how to handle this and I, I've got the wisdom to straighten this person out. And so you begin and maybe you even begin, well, well, pretty soon everyone looking on just sees two fools. And you don't, have you ever seen people argue on Facebook and ever thought that it looked, either of them looked very good? I remember when Eric Hover was here, or Hovind, excuse me, was here, and he was talking about that in Sunday school, all the arguing and, and contempt that takes place over Facebook. And if you look at most of the arguments on Facebook, they, you don't usually say, wow, that person looks super wise and mature. You usually just see two fools going back and forth, and I know that because I've been there. I've been one of those fools on more than one occasion, and, and Eric was describing, I just want to say, you're sitting there at your computer waiting for this person, you know, to respond to what you say, and you go back and forth like that, and everyone says they can't tell the difference between the two people. Now look at the next verse, Proverbs 26.5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Did you just see what looks like a contradiction in Scripture? Let's read Proverbs 26.4 and 26.5 back to back now. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So one verse says the exact opposite of what the previous verse says. Don't answer a fool, answer a fool. There is no contradiction. This is not a mistake. These verses are paired together because they're perfectly describing the dilemma that you experience with a fool. You shouldn't answer a fool for all the reasons we've been discussing in the sermon up to this point, but you should answer a fool or else, as the verse says, they will be wise in their own eyes, which means they'll continue thinking that they're right or knowing everything. And so it would be good to respond so that they could learn or grow or not remain foolish. Now, to be clear, the verse is not defending responding to fools. Instead, it is still discouraging responding to fools but it's just pointing out how hard it is not to respond, and it's pointing out how beneficial it actually would be for them if you responded, if they listened. But they don't, which is why they're categorized as fools. But the verses themselves paired together are describing that dilemma, a dilemma that you can feel when dealing with fools, or perhaps when we've been foolish, the dilemma that people have felt dealing with us before. Because it is so difficult not to respond, which brings us to our last proverb. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 3. A nice way to conclude this brief survey of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 3. A stone is heavy, sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. So you almost want to read this and say amen. If you've ever been dealing with a fool and found it incredibly difficult not to 
respond when they provoke you. We want to argue. We want to get the last word. It is usually our flesh that causes us to feel this way. It frequently is not an altruistic concern for that person to learn or grow. It is our flesh flaring up and our desire to be right or our pride that causes us to want to win this argument. Now, there are three things about this that are very encouraging to me. First, God himself is pointing out just how difficult it is not to respond to fools. And I always appreciate that when God speaks to us through his word, he often reveals that he understands what we're going through. And that is the point of this verse. So here's the thing. You know, maybe people throughout the Old Testament wonder, does God really know what this is like? Well, then God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he deals with fools every day. God knows, and when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, that was also the incarnation of wisdom. I think it's 1 Corinthians 1, 24 through 26 that discuss Jesus becoming for us the wisdom of God. If you took the book of Proverbs and the wisdom of the book of Proverbs was incarnated, that would be Jesus Christ. He, he is the logos, as John 1, 1 said, or the wisdom of God. Well, here's the thing. God knows what it's like to deal with fools. And he writes here to encourage us that it's hard when provoked not to respond, but be wise and remain silent anyway. It's like God says it's easier to lift a heavy rock or lots of sand than remain silent to a fool, but remain silent anyway. Now, second, because it is hard not to respond to fools, what does it say about people who don't respond? Well, it says that they are mature. It says that they have an amount of self-control. And so when you choose not to respond, that is a reflection of your maturity in Christ. That is a reflection of the Holy Spirit working in your life and one of those fruit, self-control, being exhibited and patience or long-suffering as well. It takes mature, you're, you're being mature when you don't respond. You're showing how the Lord has worked in your life. Third, remaining silent allows us to look like Christ, and this brings us to our last lesson. Lesson four, silence in the face of false accusations looks like Christ. Silence in the face of false accusations looks like Christ. We live in this loud, obnoxious world that has become increasingly louder and more obnoxious because of social media. I've been listening to a, a podcast about John MacArthur. It's called The Expositor. I, it's, I think it might be for pastors, but I think anyone could benefit from listening to it. And he was just talking about, because John MacArthur's been doing this over 50 years, and I think done an incredibly godly, godly job. After 50 years of such prominent public ministry for nobody to be able to bring a reviling accusation against him that sticks, is in, it says much about his blamelessness and integrity. Now, one of the things that John MacArthur was saying was that over these decades of ministry, he's watched where now people through social media have a platform that they never had before. They're given a microphone where they can be so loud, they can say things that reach hundreds or thousands of people, whereas it used to be if they wanted to reach hundreds or thousands of people, they're having to go, you know, door to door to gossip or slander. But now they can sit in the privacy of their own home and just throw out all of these accusations and slander. One of the other things that John said that I thought was significant was if people do care about you, they're not going to attack you or criticize you on social media. 
what they're going to do is they're going to come and sit down with you. And so John MacArthur made the point that whenever people have accusations against him, his door is open, and they can come and, and talk to him, and he'll receive it. But he can always tell when people don't really care about him, and they just want to slander because they choose to use social media instead. It's made the problem incredibly worse. Other people who are bitter can encourage them by liking or commenting and sharing. But one of the wonderful ways to look like Christ is to remain silent. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Of all of the wonderful things that could be said about Christ, of all of the wonderful ways in which he handled those trials at the end of his life so well, that could be pulled out and set down as an example for us, it should surprise you that his silence is one of those things that is so highly elevated in this incredible prophecy, probably the, along with Psalm 22, the most well-known messianic suffering prophecy. And that focus of it is on Jesus's silence in the face of opposition that I would say really pales in comparison to any slander we would ever receive. And then we see the fulfillment in the Gospels. Listen to this, Herod, Luke 23, 8. Herod saw Jesus. Does anyone remember how Herod felt when he saw Jesus? Says that he was glad because Herod had long desired to see Christ, not to listen to him or to learn from him, but because he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So, so Herod had heard about Christ's miracles, and now he has the miracle worker in front of him, and he says, hey, perform some miracles. Like he's, like he's this, um, you know, at a circus or something, and go ahead and do your stunts for me. Luke 23, 9, the very next verse says, Herod questioned Jesus at length, but Jesus made no answer. Jesus knew Herod was a foolish man who wasn't interested in learning, so he did not respond. And do you ever notice with the religious leaders when Jesus is talking to them, when Jesus asks them a question that they will not respond to, what does Jesus do after that? Nothing. Why is that? Because when Jesus, Jesus is more than willing, he spent most of his ministry teaching. He taught more than he did anything else. But at that moment when he recognized someone didn't want to learn, he had nothing more for them. He was going to move on and he was going to teach someplace else. When he would ask a question, if they refused to answer because he knew that that question trapped them and that they were too proud to acknowledge it, he no longer said anything else to them and then he moved on to the next, next audience. Matthew 26, 62, the high priest said to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Another trial, Matthew 27, 12, when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate's just shocked. But Jesus gave him no answer. He, would not even, he wouldn't respond to the chief priests and elders. He wouldn't respond to Pilate. He gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And then listen to this. So that the governor, Pilate, was greatly amazed. Jesus did not argue. He did not stoop to the level of his accusers. And that silence amazed even a man like Pilate. Now, what I would say is your silence can similarly amaze unbelievers who have to admire your maturity and self-control and remaining silent because it is so much like the world to respond 
that when believers or when you don't, people take notice of that and it is a significant testimony to those looking on. We're to follow Christ's example, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So we're told to follow Christ's example, and then Peter describes that example for us. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that is my encouragement as your pastor to myself and to all of you. When fools revile you or they threaten you, do not revile or threaten in return. Restrain your flesh. And instead, entrust yourself to the God who judges justly, just like your Lord did. Let Christ's example be the encouragement that you need. If you have any questions about anything I preached in this sermon or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service, and I would consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the wonderful truths it contains. I thank you for how it equips us to live life on this side of heaven. I'm sure all of us have experienced uh, shimmy eyes before or in Jeremiah's day, the, uh, uh, Hananiah, or in Hezekiah's day, uh, Sennacherib. I thank you for the examples of these godly men um, in Hezekiah and in, in David and in Jeremiah, and especially in Christ himself. And I know that it was just Christ working through these men for them to respond well. And so help us in the same manner, Lord. It's not easy. It's when being slandered, it's tempting to want to respond, to argue, to defend ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that we would see these, these men's example, and especially the instruction from your word to remain silent, to entrust ourselves to you, and allow you your sovereignty to give us great confidence in this, any situations being resolved. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.